Okay, good evening, everyone. Good, good to see you all tonight. Thank you for being here. And tonight we're going to be looking at uh, finding real power, which so we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit in our life. Also, next week we'll be looking at uh, you will receive power from on high, Jesus' promise. So we'll be looking more about the Holy Spirit, particularly about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how we can come into uh, what I call experiential faith. So um, you should have an outline. Actually, we'll get to the outline in just a minute, but we're going to be looking at the scriptures first. So let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we begin. So in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Father, we give you praise tonight as we gather as your people to hear your word and to grow in our friendship with you and with each other. So, Father, we pray tonight for our hearts and minds to be open to the word regarding the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the third person of the Trinity, worshipped, ever to be worshipped and adored, to be praised. We thank you, Father, that you poured out the Holy Spirit as the gift promised by your Son, Jesus, to us, that in baptism he comes to dwell in us and make us sacred temples and tabernacles of your presence. So, Lord, help us to thirst for more of your presence and more of your power, more of you in our life, so that our faith may truly be filled with the living knowledge of the risen Christ, whose job it is for the Holy Spirit to reveal him to us. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, tonight we'll be looking at John uh, for our scripture to look at with John chapter 4. This is the woman of uh, Samaria, the woman at the well. As you're turning there, John chapter 4, um, just to give you a little bit of background to that particular uh, scripture and story, it's a uh, part of the theme of faith that John has in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, and then the man born blind, chapter 9, and then Lazarus being raised from the dead, chapter 11. Those three Gospels are read during the uh, Sundays of Lent, the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. Uh, they, uh, the church gives you the option of actually reading those Gospels every single year, so it really doesn't matter what cycle of readings you're in. Uh, but certainly it mandates it on year A, um, so because it's designed for the catechumens, for those coming to faith. It's also good for the rest of us who need to continue to deepen our faith and grow in our faith. So, th- so this story, uh, Woman at the Well, is part of that coming to faith that John talks about in those three stories. Uh, the Woman at the Well, the Man Born Blind, and Lazarus Raised from the Dead. Okay, so let's, I'm just going to go to the scripture itself this evening and t- take, up, take each uh, several verses and kind of break them open. And then we'll go to the outline. So begin first with uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that uh, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, just as his disciples, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So let me just stop right there for a moment. When anytime John's gospel says he had to pass, it means it was part of the Father's plan, part of what the Father wanted to see take place. Um, the first three verses there speak about Jesus uh, leaving Judea, headed north to Galilee. Um, and uh, John specifically speaks about Jesus was not baptizing. Um, and then in verse 4, the necessity of the Father's will that he had to pass through Samaria. So we call this a divine appointment. 
father had arranged a meeting between Jesus and the woman with the well, a divine appointment. It's like uh, a happenstance that occurred, if you would, but it wasn't by accident. It's something that the father arranged. He arranged it as part of those for this woman's life, the woman at the well, and what would happen to her as her encounter with Jesus. But it also was something the father revealed to reveal Jesus uh, to will ultimately will be John's gospel. So we have divine appointments in our life. You know, the Lord arranges for people to come together, moments that happen that we didn't plan for. And, uh, and we'll talk more about divine appointments going forward in the future here. But there are great moments of ministry, great moments of opportunity where the Lord has planned something in a most spontaneous way. To us, it's spontaneous. To him, it was purposed. And uh, so let's take a look uh, at the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans here? Uh, The Jews and Samaritans were ethnic and religious rivals uh, going back, oh, several centuries. Um, What happened was the they were just before there was Samaritans and Jews, there was just Jews and a part of them split off and and sided with the Assyrian Empire. And they end up worshiping what would be called the five Assyrian pagan gods. Now, that's number five will reappear again in our gospel in just a few minutes here. And uh, the other part of the Jews, particularly in northern Israel, felt that uh, the Samaritans had tra- were traitors, basically. And as a result of that, they became rivals, both religiously and ethnically. They had a, like a feud going on for over 500 years. Samaritans also worshipped a temple built on Mount Gerizim, which the Jewish in the Jewish eyes was really doesn't did not belong to them at all. So they regarded the Samaritans as worshippers of pagan gods, basically. Jesus will address that through the woman's life in just a minute. So, so the story basically is filled with a conflict. So here we have a Jew, Jesus, speaking to a woman, uh, a Samaritan, in a public setting. So let's take a look here. Uh, at verses uh, 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I would put it about 12 noon. Now, in the scriptures, anytime there's a well, it indicates a marriage. Okay, if you go back to the Old Testament, Jacob... uh, found his wife Rebecca there. Uh, Isaac found his wife Rachel there. Moses would find his wife there as he protected these uh, uh, women that came to, to the well at a certain time of the day. He was able to defend them from uh, people that wanted to, basically to hurt them. So a well in the scripture means a marriage. And so what we're talking about here is the theme of marriage. It appeared, if you remember, in John chapter 2, our very first week, but the wedding of Cana. And Weddings are not just simply weddings in the scriptures, but they reflect and point to God's desire for friendship and to wed himself to his people. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So, Because part of what Jesus' aim and part of the Father's divine appointment here is to uh, talk about what will become ultimately a reconciliation between the Jews and the Samaritans, something that would be achieved after Pentecost through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Uh, so that's what's happening here with the well. Um, seven, verses 7 and 9, through 9 rather, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Well, first of all, something is not quite right in this woman's life because here she's coming at noon to find, get water. She should have been coming the early part of the day when everybody else was coming. But she wanted to avoid the company of everybody else. And she came at noon, a time that really was off the charts in terms of when she should have been coming. So, but she deliberately did that because she, there's, there's an element of her life that she's hiding, which we'll see in just a minute. Um, she recognizes the fact of two things here. She recognizes the fact that Jesus is a man asking her, a woman, for something to drink. Men in this, this culture did not talk to women publicly unless it was their wife. So she picks that up immediately and questions him on that. Also, she recognizes that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, and there's obviously the, the, the ethnic uh, kind of feud going on there. Another thing we see here is that Jesus is tired. Um, you know, uh, actually, if you look back at verse 6 there, it says, Jesus weary, he's with his journey. And John wants us to see that not only is Jesus fully divine, which he's going to really reveal to us more clearly in this gospel, uh, this story, but also he's fully human. Jesus, the Son of God, is wearied. He's tired from the journey. And, and he wasn't just, like, faking it. Like, I mean, he really was tired. You know, he really was exhausted. He really was looking for, you know, rest. And so here we see the humanity of Jesus coming through. Okay, and then um, she asks for a drink of water. Uh, you know, she question, well, he does, and she, she questions him and and then it says here, the commentary John makes for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And verse 10, Jesus answered her. Okay, and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So first, the gift of God is a phrase that refers to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and um, he's saying to her that if you knew who I was, so here we see the woman doesn't know who he is. And we're going to see in this story is a progressive revelation or unfolding to this woman's life of her faith progressing from point A to point B to point C. We're going to see how Jesus took her from one point to a place where she became completely open to him to want this gift of the Holy Spirit that he was talking about. So if you knew the gift of God who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In the scriptures, living water refers to the Holy Spirit. Now, um, you know, what, so what, what's happening here is Jesus is thirsting for her faith. He, he wants her faith. In other words, he wants her to become alive in her faith. Um, and he wants her to move from a place of pagan worship and idols which she is part of as her people and the brokenness in her life, which we'll see in just a minute, to a place where she thirsts for the gift that he's offering, which is the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see where the Holy Spirit is kind of like the catalyst. Um, I like to say without any kind of, uh, certainly no sense of uh, dishonor, but it's like the the Holy Spirit is like the gasoline in your car. You can have the best car around, the best, all the bells and whistles. It can look wonderful, but if you don't have any gasoline, it's not going anywhere. That's what the Holy Spirit is to the Christian life. If the Holy Spirit is not alive, like as we'll see in a moment, like rivers of living water, then our Christian life just kind of limps along. 
that's the Holy Spirit it animates us and brings to life our faith and makes it brand new, brand new. Okay, so Jesus thirsts for her faith and he wants to give her the Holy Spirit, which is called the gift of God. The Father is promising the Holy Spirit. So water symbolizes the Holy Spirit and living water or running water, if you would, also symbolizes, it's a Semitic idiom that, that uh, speaks about uh, the Holy Spirit. So now, uh, just to give you, um, this story, chapter 4, follows after chapter 3 in John's Gospel, which is about Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee that comes at night to find out, you know, uh, he went to chat with Jesus, and he didn't want to do it in front of all his comrades, so he came at night, secretive, you know, and he went to really test and find out who Jesus really was. I mean, he was a true inquirer and seeking. The contrast here, John shows us, the woman comes at noon. So we have a, Nicodemus comes at night, the woman comes at noon. So what's the difference here? Why is John making a big deal out of this? Because he's basically saying that what, what Nicodemus was trying to find out, this woman's going to experience in the, in the, in the, out there, right, in the new time of the day, in the brightness out there for everyone to see. Because Nicodemus was, didn't really become a believer until the resurrection, Whereas this woman will become a believer in Christ as the Messiah through her encounter with him at this moment in a new time of day for her. Okay, so uh, verses 11 and 12, then we see here, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, uh, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it? himself and his sons and his cattle. So here's a, um, some thoughts here. The woman is coming to the well or the cistern, if you would, and she's coming to draw water for her needs. Jesus is offering her the gift of living water. Now, in the scriptures, uh, cisterns weren't just simply places where people went to drink, but the prophets used cisterns to describe the spiritual condition of God's people. So Jeremiah says that you've gone to cisterns that are empty. In other words, you, you bought into uh, pagan idols and, you know, and ways of living that just leave your life empty. You've been drinking from empty cisterns. In other words, you were, you were drinking from the wrong well, basically. And so here's what John is trying to say to us, that Jesus has come to bring this woman the gift of living water so she can drink from a cistern that will completely satisfy her. She's been drinking from the wrong cisterns or cisterns that just don't satisfy her life. And we'll see that in just a minute. So Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level while the woman obviously is still on that physical level. Okay. And verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here Jesus begins to identify the nature of this living water. It's, it gives eternal life. And here he's talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit becomes an interior source of refreshment, blessing, empowerment for our life. That's what he was offering this woman. So the Holy Spirit imparts divine life to us and lifts our human existence in a level beyond ourselves. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does, as we'll see in a moment through our outlines. He makes everything new. He makes everything come alive. He takes old things and refreshes them in a way that they're to us brand new. He takes things that are familiar to us and he fills them and empowers them in a way that it's like we're seeing it for the first time. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to look at in just a minute. That's what Jesus is offering this woman here. And he's offering that to us too, by the way. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So here the woman is starting to become open to what Jesus is offering. Now she's still working on that very natural level, but she is starting to become open to Jesus and what he's offering. But she's not there yet. Remember, this is a progression. Jesus is leading her through. Okay, so verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. Okay, so um, Jesus was reading her mail, basically, at this point. So he had insight into her heart. As we're going to see, it wasn't insight to judge her or condemn her. It was insight to free her and reveal to her the cistern to drink from that will truly satisfy her. So this dialogue then about co-call your husband on one level, it reflects the brokenness of this woman's life, the relationships where she was thought sought power for her life and didn't find it. She drank from cisterns that were empty for her life. Sometimes we do that, right? We drink from places that we thought would satisfy us, would fulfill us. We find out that they were empty in the end. But on another level, Jesus is pointing to not just this woman, but the woman's worship and her people's worship. Remember those five Assyrian gods I spoke about earlier? Pagan gods they worship. Well, the five husbands refer to the five Assyrian pagan gods that the Samaritans were worshiping for centuries. Jesus is like saying, I'm going to reveal to you the true God so you can worship him, so you can go back and tell your people, basically. So um, so that's the background behind it. So Jesus knows well what this woman, who's this woman's worshiping and her people are worshiping. He knows the whole history, of course. And his goal is to win this woman's heart by opening her up to faith in him to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so she can go back and tell her people. Okay, so okay, so now verses uh, 19 and 20. Uh, Jesus, uh, the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, now, here, she's, now she's getting really, like something's beginning to click in her. Okay, something's becoming, like the bells are starting to ring with inside of her. Okay, like she's moving beyond the natural level to see who this person is. Now, a prophet is a good step for her. She went from a Jew to now a prophet. She's not there yet about who he is, but she's making good progress. Okay, so in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Okay, so she's referring to the Jewish people. They say that Jerusalem is the true place of worship, whereas this is the feud now between them. Uh, and where they're used to worshiping on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews have always said they worshiped in the wrong place. They worshiped with the Assyrian gods. 
verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When Now, hour in John's gospel always refers to Jesus' passion, his death, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So verse 20, Our fathers worship on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said there, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So here Jesus is correcting her. And he's saying to her, you know, I'm going to reveal to you the, my, my father, who is the true God to worship. And the language for the word know here um, is the language of experiential faith. It's the language of knowing and intimacy. It doesn't come by intellectual knowledge. It comes by its language of the heart, its knowledge of the heart, its experiential faith. It's coming into an encounter that brings about a knowing that builds on the intellect, but goes beyond the intellect. It deepens one's heart and life to a commitment to a laying down of one's life for the person that you encounter. That's what he's saying he wants to bring this woman to. And that's what he wants to bring each of us to. And he does that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So um, so he's describing for her where he wants to take her. He says, when you encounter the, my father and know him in an intimate way, you will know what true worship is. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal the father to us. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us to true worship. Okay, verse 22 Jesus, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus affirms for her that God's plan of salvation is to come through the Jewish people, meaning the covenants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the different covenants and so on. It was the vocation of Israel. Isaiah spoke about it in Isaiah 49 where he says, I will make you, meaning the uh, Israelite, a light to the nations. Uh, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So it was always Israel's vocation to reveal God's saving plan. And that would come to fruition in the person of Jesus. Okay, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. Again, the language of spirit and truth is the language of the Father, meaning the Father will reveal who he is, so you'll know him in intimate terms. Okay, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to impart to us understanding um, and a knowledge I call uh, gut-level knowledge, gut-level knowing, you know, in which we in which Jesus becomes alive and real to us in a personal way. The Holy Spirit's role is to teach, instruct us. It's not just something internal, but comes through like sacraments as well. Every sacrament is meant to be a place of encounter with the risen Christ, that we come away with a deeper knowing in our hearts of his risen presence, where we learn to listen to him as part of the fruit of that. St. Paul described it this way in Romans chapter 8. He talked about how the spirit of, of the Lord in, in us stirs our heart to cry out, Abba, Father, which means it's a knowing of God as a 
Father who loves us and cares for us. There's an intimacy of knowing there. And this is all the work of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. He wants to bring us to this kind of encounter and living knowledge, um, this kind of experiential faith, this kind of making real to us the persons of the Trinity. Okay. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Okay, so her heart's really becoming open now because she... She's aware of the prophecies about the Messiah. He will show us all things, which means that he he will bring my life to a fulfillment to know exactly who he is. There was a sense of knowing, meaning they had a sense of knowing that God was going to become real in their life. And verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. He reveals to her who he is. Now his divinity becomes clear to her. Well, Again, the word I am means I am the Lord. That's what he's saying. I am I am the Father's Son. I'm Yahweh, essentially. We won't go any further than this, but what happens to this woman after this, she goes off and she tells people who she found, what he said about her life, and who he is. She becomes an evangelist. She moves from not knowing him at all, just simply as a Jew, to a prophet, to now the Messiah. There was this progressive revealing to her life by the Holy Spirit of who Jesus was. So Jesus became a real person as the Son of God, as the Messiah to her. And she found in him the the drink of water that would satisfy her heart. And she went off and told others about it. So her encounter led her to evangelize. No encounter? She's not telling anybody, right? Jesus not real to her? She's not, she's not saying a word to anybody. She'd be, she would look like a fool. So what does she do? Her encounter with Jesus leads her, empowers her. I mean, she didn't take an evangelization course. Okay, She didn't go to the seminary. You know, She didn't even come to a Thursday night Bible study. Okay, Her, her encounter with Jesus led her to go talk to others about who Jesus was. She told them who she found, what he, how he changed her life, how he, how he intervened in her life. So this is what we mean by evangelization, to be perfectly honest with you. It's telling others about my living encounter with Jesus and how he's affected and changed my life. Was this woman perfect? Hardly. <laughs> was there still a lot of baggage in this woman's life? I'm sure there was. There's stuff that needed to be cleaned up in her life. I'm sure there was. But you know, when you catch fish, that's a big thing to catch fish. Then you have to clean them up, right? So Jesus does, she, he caught the fish. But he wasn't so concerned about having to clean her up and tie her up. And She went off and evangelized as she was. Because her life had been caught by the Son of God. She encountered him and her life changed. And as she was, with all her baggage and faults and weaknesses and whatever, she went off and she told them about whom she encountered. And Jesus was good with that. So you don't need to be perfect. You just need to have a living encounter with Jesus and then tell others how he's changing your life. It's as simple as that. Now, just to give you a little postscript to everything before we move to the outlines. 
Pentecost occurs, right? And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is in Jerusalem, which is great. And then it moves from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. The next outpouring of the Holy Spirit we find is in Samaria, Acts chapter 8, led by Philip there. He was used by the Lord. Actually, it was, it was on the heels of persecution that was scattering the church. And the Lord used the persecution to spread the church into Samaria. There, Samaritans not only came to a living faith like this woman, but they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now it went from the church of Jerusalem to the church of Samaria. And the Lord was reconciling and healing over 500 years of ethnic and religious rival between these groups through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what the work of the Holy Spirit can do. It can heal and reconcile in a way that nothing else can. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. And so you had the church of Jerusalem, and you had the churches springing up in Samaria. They were Christians. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. So the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had brothers and sisters who were Samaritans. And only the Holy Spirit could do that. Reminds me, in the mid-70s, 1970s, in Ireland, between Northern Ireland, the Protestants and Catholics, and just the, the terrorism that was going on there and everything with it, it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the charismatic renewal that brought together Protestants and Catholics in prayer meetings and in Christian communities where they shared life and where they shared faith and prayer, and they shared support of one another and care for one another, despite all the terrorism, despite all the feuding, despite all the, the terrorism that was going on between those two groups of people. Right in the midst of all that, the Lord raised up Christian communities of Protestants and Catholics that came as a result of people experiencing the Holy Spirit in their life. He made their faith come alive in such a way that it healed the wounds of these two groups and transcended their differences because they focused upon the person of Christ who became real to them. So it's some, that's what the Holy Spirit is capable of doing in a way that goes beyond our abilities. Okay, so we're going to go to your outlines now and we're going to take a look at um, who the Holy Spirit is and what does he do. Who is the Holy Spirit? We're going to look at this tonight. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And then next week we'll look at how we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. So who is the Holy Spirit? The first number one here is new things came into being by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's always at work making new things. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. There the Holy Spirit is creating something that wasn't there. He was creating... Uh, Basically, creating what will be ultimately be the creation that we know from the physical world. That's what he did. There was nothing there, and he made something new. Genesis 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. There, God himself created something new. That is a human person. Okay, so that's the first thing the Holy Spirit wants to do. He's always at work making new things in our life. Like I said, he takes old things about our faith and he makes them come alive to us. We're not talking about new doctrine. We're not talking about new dogmas. We're not talking about that. We're talking about taking very things that are we're so familiar with as Catholics, like sacraments and like the scriptures and like our prayer, and he makes them come alive as if we're experiencing them for the first time. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
Number two, he came upon particular people at particular times for particular tasks. This is the Old Testament. This is, this, to me, this is a summary of the Old Testament. He only came on certain people at certain times for certain missions or tasks. And that was it for the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So let's take an example of that. Exodus 31, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every craft. One person was given these marvelous gifts. Great, that's good. That, but nobody else was given any gifts. Just this one guy for this particular task. Um, Judges chapter 6, verse 15 says, But Gideon said to him, uh, Please, Lord, how am I to rescue Israel? Behold, my family is the least significant in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. So the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon for a certain task, for a certain mission regarding Israel. The rest of Gideon's family didn't even see hot, you know, anything about the Holy Spirit at all. So the Holy Spirit came on in the Old Testament certain people at certain times. Number three, the Holy Spirit, he was sent by the Father of Jesus. The Old Testament looked to this. Ezekiel 36 says, I will take away your stubborn heart, give you a new heart, desire to be faithful. You will have only pure thoughts because I will put my spirit in you, make you eager to obey my laws and teachings. Next week, we'll look a little bit more about this, but this is Ezekiel was speaking about how the Holy Spirit would come into our hearts through the waters of baptism. And the Father promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, the promise of my Father is the Holy Spirit. But what he'll do is give us a new heart, a new desire. Now, in baptism, we're given a new heart. We're given a new desire. That is the Holy Spirit living in us. But a lot of times it can lay dormant. So what we do today is we pray over people for a fresh outpouring or release of the Holy Spirit in their life so that what Ezekiel's talking about become, can become alive to them as if that, you know, that they kind of now experience what maybe they never really experienced or maybe they had and lost at one time. Now, now we're saying, hey, let's make it alive to you today. Let's pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life so you can become alive in the things that regarding our faith. Number four is John the Baptist linked the Holy Spirit to Jesus. John the Baptist, as we'll see a little bit more next week, played a very significant part in talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The, word, the prophets all looked for a time in which the Lord, when Messiah, when he came, would pour out the Holy Spirit upon all people, not just certain people, not just certain times and places, but all people. John takes that phrase, baptism with the Spirit, meaning uh, like a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a plunging of, of people into the Holy Spirit, not just one person, but many people. And so John ties that together with Jesus. So next week, we'll look more specifically at this prophecy because it appears four times in the gospel. Each gospel has this prophecy of John the Baptist. And the book of Acts records it twice. So it's six times in the New Testament. And one time's important. Six times is like really, really important. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Uh, Luke says also, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit as he left the Jordan River. The Spirit led him while he was in the desert. Okay. And that was to confront Satan to undo the work of Satan. 
And then John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, Jesus says this. On the final and climactic day of the feast, Jesus took his stand. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way. Just as the scripture says, he said this in regard to the spirit whom those who have believed in him were about to receive. That would come at Pentecost. The spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Notice that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as like rivers of living water. Meaning that there's an abundance of the outpouring of the spirit to make our life come alive and make our faith come alive as if we're experiencing it for the first time. That's what he was telling. That's what he was prophesying on this day. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So power is the word here. A dunamis means dynamite. We all know what dynamite does. One little stick of dynamite can rearrange a building, Right. Well, that's what we're talking about. That's what uh, is prophesied here by Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you, when he comes alive in your life, it's going to be like dynamite. You're going to know it. And others around you will know it too. I mean, how can a, a stick of dynamite go off and no one know it, right? So that's what we're talking about here, that we're not just talking about it in internalized faith that, you know, just me, myself, and I basically know, you know, no, we're talking about something that will change us and transform us so that I know it, others around me know it. And notice what it says here, witnesses. Remember the woman, the woman at the well? She was a witness to what she encountered. She told her story on the basis of what she encountered and how her life changed. That's what the Holy Spirit will do for us. He will so change us in a way that we can tell others the story of our encounter with Jesus. Again, we're not talking about perfect people. We're talking about an encounter with the risen Christ that changes us in a way that is eternal. And we know it. We just know it. Okay, so that's what the Holy Spirit, that's who the Holy Spirit is. And now let's turn over and look at what does the Holy Spirit do? So number one is he brings new birth through the waters of baptism. John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it will, it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So we, um, the new birth, okay, is we're brought from kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through the waters of baptism. That's whether it's a baby or as an adult. Uh, the, the Lord honors the prayer of his church, whether uh, parents praying over their child for baptism, uh, priests and deacons praying over the child for baptism. The Lord honors that and brings a child from darkness to light through the waters of baptism. But here's the thing about it. St. Augustine said this so well. He was a great, by the way, a champion of infant baptism. And he said this. He said it's a great gift, you know, and he, and he pushed it in his church of his day, infant baptism. But he said this, if we are baptized as an infant and we do not grow up and live in conformity to that baptism, it profits us nothing. That's what he said, profits us nothing. So I often say we cannot surf on the waters of baptism all our life. At some point, we need to uh, stand on our own two feet and lay claim to what was given to us on the day of our baptism. That what they said about over us, 
on the day of our, my baptism, I need to be able to stand on my own two feet as an adult and say, I claim that, I own that, I commit myself to that. And that's where we need to bring, that's where all of us, including myself, we need to go, we need to experience in our life that, but we need to bring our fellow parishioners to that place too, so that they can say with confidence and with assurance in their heart that Jesus is alive in their life, and they can tell others how he's changing their life, how they're encountering him. That's called evangelization. All right. Okay, so what else does the Holy Spirit do? Number two, he, we become sons and daughters. We're part of, we become part of his family. Remember, we have God as an Abba, a father. So we can know God, not as simply as the, the um, unmovable force in the sky or the force be with you. or you know, We know him as a father in a personal way who cares for us in what we're going through. Let's take a look at what St. Paul said. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now for children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a basic teaching in the New Testament that everyone who is baptized is to know God as a, as a father, uh, Abba. Now, the word Abba means daddy. That's the intimacy we're called to know him. And again, that's, that's something the Holy Spirit does in this. This doesn't come because, oh, I, I learned it someplace. You know, it's because the Holy Spirit brings us to that encounter or that I call it experiential faith, something we experience. Let me give you an example I mean by experience. If I talk to you about baseball, you know, and I say, let's have a, Come to a classroom, and I'll teach you about baseball. So I hand you a couple books to read in, in preparation time. On the chalkboard, I you know write all the different terms and draw the diamonds and everything. Okay, so you learn something about baseball. So let's go to a baseball game. So you go to the baseball game, and during the game, I point out to you what's happening. Pitcher's pitching, he's throwing, he's kind of, the guy's flagging down the balls in the outfield and so on. Okay, and I say, that's fine. I, now I, I put a glove in your hand, and you're now in right field. And they're hitting fly balls out there, and you're running them down. Or they put a bat in your hand, and you're swinging away to hit. And you hit something, and you start running to first base. See the difference? You went from an intellectual knowledge to now an experiential knowledge of baseball. Now you can say, you know, for... You know, no matter how successful or unsuccessful you were, you can say to me afterwards, hey, I played baseball. I now can tell you not just about the game, I can tell you my experience of the game. That's experiential faith. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to bring each of us to in our life. Okay, so what else does the Holy Spirit do? Number three, the Holy Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know how. He's really good at this. He has a way of teaching us to pray, moving our, inspiring our hearts to pray. He has a way of helping us to pray beyond our own language. He gives us language of tongues to pray. We'll talk about that a little bit next week and later on in the Lenten season. This is what St. Paul says again, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but... But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. 
So the Holy Spirit is a way of helping us to pray in a way that brings us into harmony with God's will and takes us beyond our limitations. We all have limitations when it comes to prayer. You know, but the Holy Spirit is a way of taking us beyond those limitations by giving his gifts of prayer. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week and later more about it in Lent. And then what else does the Holy Spirit do? He, we learn the word of God. The Holy Spirit's a great teacher of God's word to us. He wants to instruct us in the word of God. He wants to fill our hearts and minds with a, a desire for the word of God. He wants to stir our hearts for um, about understanding the word in a way that is that kind of changes us, transforms us. And remember, uh, again, Jesus said this, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to take Jesus' teaching. He's going to declare it. The word for declare means to break it open in your life, to make it penetrate your heart and the mind in a way that changes you. And lastly, the Holy Spirit brings us encounter uh, Christ. We encounter Christ in the sacraments. Catechism of the church describes sacraments as powers. I don't know if you ever thought of that before, but it's actually a teaching of the church. Actually, it's in the catechism. It's uh, kind of like one of those phrases you can easily skip over. Powers, meaning encounters with the risen Christ that effectively change us by bringing us understanding of, of who the Lord is and what he wants to do in our life. Jesus says, if anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, I will raise that person at the last day. Okay. Notice the language there. You eat the Lord's flesh and blood, that's the Eucharist. You have eternal life. He's speaking about the encounter, the experience of eternal life. Like, you know, there's changes going on in your life that deal with your eternity. You just know that. That's, that's him bringing you into the encounter with the Lord through the Eucharist. Number four, the Holy Spirit gives gifts for all God's people. Gifts are another uh, spiritual gifts. Um, we'll look more about that next week. Uh, charisms are called. Uh, it's the Greek word meaning spiritual gifts. There are many gifts he gives us. We'll take a look at just briefly next week about what those gifts look like. Some of those gifts are. St. Paul said this, now to each one. You can underline each one. Put in parentheses there underneath each one is me. Okay, Each one, me. The manifestation of the gift is given for the common good. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each of us, charisms to each of us. And their purpose is to serve the Lord's people and to build, to give witness to Christ. Okay, and number five, the Holy Spirit brings us into the family of God. The human part, human body has many parts, but many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Now here, I want to show you a difference here um, between number two. I said he makes us become sons and daughters. That's in relationship to God as a father. Like I know I'm part of his family. And he's my father because I, I know him in a personal way. Now, number five is the corollary to that, which is I know I have brothers and sisters in Christ. If I have a father and I'm a son and daughter, I have siblings in Christ. They're my brothers and sisters. Now, I'd like to point out something here is I'm not just talking about theological language. I'm talking about experiential realities. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes alive in our life, one of the things he does is he makes me realize I need others to live out and grow in my Christian life. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I don't see you any longer as just simply another fellow parishioner. I see you as my brother or my sister in Christ because we have the same Father, the same Lord. We belong to the same body, which is Jesus's body. Now, I could preach that to him blue in the face, 
and won't mean a hill of beans until the Holy Spirit leads you into the encounter or the experience. That's why we pray for people to be to experience a fresh release of the Holy Spirit in life because he makes these things come alive to us. Teaching the word is important, but experience of the Holy Spirit is equally important because, you know, my words will only go so far. God's word will penetrate your heart as well as my heart, but it's the Holy Spirit who gets it there. And so when he becomes more alive in our life, then he makes these things a reality to us. So I want So here's the here's the. Uh, Here's the results of that, and that is, I want to be with other Christians, brothers and sisters. I want to pray with them. I want to share my faith and life with them. I want to serve them. These are things I just want to do. Nobody has to twist my arm to do it. I just want to do it. Okay. I want to meet with other Christians and pray with them. You know, you know, like, it's like a spontaneous desire within. I just want to do it. Nobody has to you know, convince me of it. It comes from within. And who, again, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not anybody else's work. It's not my work or anybody else's. It's really a work of the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, so that's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's who he is. Okay, so next week we'll look at how we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that. Remember Acts chapter 1. You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, so you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We could say, be my witnesses in Poverty Grace, Harford County, State of Maryland, United States of America, and to the ends of the earth. You know. So, and that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit becoming alive in our life. Okay, so let's take a look at your questions, and these will be for each group here tonight. Um, we'll take about maybe 15 minutes to look at this. What impresses you about the Holy Spirit? Okay, and when you have had the, a specific, when have you had a specific experience of the Holy Spirit in your life that you can relate to? Okay, we'll take about fifteen minutes. Father, yes. Sure. Yes. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. So, 